of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. And welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. And as always, great to be here discussing uh, theological matters, uh, matters related to uh, worship, theology, and culture. And as I said last week, I am beginning a, uh, it will be, I think, a five-part series, could be a six-part series, but a at least a five-part series on the five solas. And some of you may have never heard that term, the five solas. What are the five solas? Well, um, I will get into that a little bit. I don't know how much I would delve into the um, historical aspect of the five solas, certainly. And by the way, this will be uh, this material will be published in a more concise and clear manner than what I'm going to present here on the on the podcast, uh, but it will be published as a book, and I will probably get more into the historical aspects of the uh, five solas when I publish that book, but my goal in the podcast is just to cover each one of the five solas. So what are the five solas? Here it is in a nutshell, uh, this uh, it really is, uh, these are doctrines from Scripture, so they didn't originate in the Reformation period. They have been in Scripture for, uh, for since long before that. Um, but these were doctrines that really are, this is a concise presentation of the gospel that um, it came out during the Reformation period primarily because of the Catholic Church's, I don't want to say stance against them, but the Catholic Church had moved so far away from this gospel teaching that the Reformers returned to the fundamentals of the gospel. And really, the five solas are a presentation of the gospel. So in their Latin language, the five solas are um, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, uh, sola Scriptura and Soli Deo Gloria. What that is, is grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. So you could say the gospel is that uh, Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith, uh, sorry, by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And the word sola, obviously, is the alone part. And um, I've heard it said that that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Uh, Tully and Chavidian once once said that, and that is very true. And these um, doctrines in the Reformation era taught people that this is the gospel. This is salvation, nothing else. It's not any money you can pay. It's not any work you can do because no matter what you do, it's not enough. And so I am very excited about being able to cover these five solas over the next few weeks. And as I said, this material will end up in a book eventually that I will publish. This is not going to be one of my most um, deep and academic type books, uh, but hopefully a clear presentation of the gospel. And so let's get going. So the first one I'm going to cover this week is sola gratia. That's the Latin term for um, grace alone. 
And I begin with grace alone, and I'll get into this a little bit more over the next few weeks because I'm doing it in this order. That it, it, according to Ephesians, Ephesians two, we are saved by grace through faith. So I, I'm going grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, the glory of God alone. So a common passage of Scripture, often used in the presentation of the gospel, is Ephesians two eight through nine, which the Apostle Paul says this: For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing; it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This was a resounding cry of the Reformation, and it's the concept of salvation by grace alone. This became the theme of theologians, pastors, and believers of all walks who knew and understood that the grace of God was too precious and too extreme to be attained by uh, by any human. And so the sin of humanity is so consummate that to say the attainability of salvation is difficult would be a vast understatement because humanity is hopeless and on a trajectory to hell without the grace of God. So the single greatest need of all humans is grace. And Christians need to be mindful of the fact that grace is equally as needed in their own lives as in the lives of the vilest sinners. I've said this before, but sometimes we get the idea that that there are varying degrees of sinfulness. We, we might say that everybody is equally as sinful, but some, somehow deep within us we think that, well, you know, some people are worse or better than others. You know, you think of the worst that you can think of, the Charles Mansons or the Jeffrey Dahmers, and we think, well, these people are worse than I am. That is blatantly wrong, according to Scripture. Hear me on that. You are equally as sinful, equally as evil, equally as depraved as Jeffrey Dahmer was, as Charles Manson. We are all fallen, 100% dead in our trespasses. And you know, when scripture uses the term dead, that we are dead in our sin, dead in our trespasses, how can someone who is alive or who is dead be alive at all any sort of alive. you're dead is dead you're you're not partially dead everyone is equally dead to sin and so we need to be mindful of the fact that we are all equally in need of grace so paul understood the grace of god because he he refers to himself as the worst of sinners in first timothy 1 15 and when you read of the radical change in paul's life when he met the risen lord on the road to Damascus, um, it, it reveals that no one, including the Apostle Paul, is beyond the grace of God. Sometimes we forget that Paul was actually a pretty terrible person. And, and here's the thing. The things he did, okay, he killed Christians. He persecuted, he killed, he tortured them. That's pretty bad. <laughs> we try to write that off sometimes like, like well, Paul wasn't that bad. No, he was pretty terrible. And um, he did terrible things. And, and here's the thing. He did it for what he thought was honoring God. But it obviously wasn't. He met Christ and his life was radically changed. And so he understood the grace of God. It's only by God's grace that salvation is possible. And so the Apostle Paul confesses the grace of God to his readers. And he praises God for his matchless saving work. And so when, when you read 
uh, of Paul's conversion. It's a radical work. When you read in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, when Paul's talking about the grace of God, it's by grace we have been saved through faith. He understands it. When you read that entire chapter, some commentators have even suggested that verses 4 through 10 of chapter 2 are kind of a hymn celebrating the glories of salvation and of sola gratia, which is twice interrupted by the liturgical acclamation, by grace you have been saved. Obviously, this was very important to Paul. And so saved, this emphasizes the abiding consequences of God's saving action in the past. As if Paul is saying, you are people who have been saved and remain forever saved. Not just a past tense thing, but you are saved, you are, you have been saved, you are presently saved, and you are forever saved. So Paul presents an otherwise illogical progression that would not be possible by any human endeavor. While we were dead in sin, Ephesians 2.5, Christ made his people alive together, Ephesians 2.5. Uh, uh, sorry, in, in, uh, and, and he seated them with himself in Ephesians 2.6. That he might be glorified by by revealing the riches of his grace, Ephesians 2, 7. Read that entire chapter, Ephesians 2, and you will see how fundamental the grace of God is to the Apostle Paul. He made his people alive together. He seated them with himself so that he might be glorified, revealing the riches of his grace. The purpose is God's glory. And so this is the founding of Paul's declaration, God's glory. In other words, Christ has shown and has offered grace solely for the purpose that he might be glorified. So sola gratia, or grace alone, was the cry of the reformers, and it's the cry of the radically changed Christian heart today. And it has been throughout church history. The first sola of the five should remind God's people that nothing else is adequate to save but the grace of God alone. So grace alone infers a range of truths which should be evident when we experience God's grace. And there are three overarching essentials that I think are, are stalwartly tied to sola gratia and should be present in every believer's life. So let me get into the, these three essentials about grace. And it's what grace supersedes. The first one is grace alone, or sola gratia, supersedes human will. So this thought permeated the Reformation era. It's the historic and biblical concept of God's sovereignty. Someone's soteriology or thoughts of salvation is often formed around the thought of God's sovereignty and humankind's responsibility. Sola gratia suggests that God's grace alone saves. God's grace alone secures, and nothing but God's grace alone sufficiently does both. Saves and secures. God's grace supersedes anything and everything regarding the salvation of God's chosen people, including human will. And so, upon a baseless perversion of Scripture, the former Catholic Church displayed a selfishness and a deceit in claims that human action could play a role in salvation. It's well documented that the selling of indulgences infuriated Martin Luther. It it would be... 
like this. Um, someone had committed a sin and goes to the priest. By the way, this is, this is one aspect that Martin Luther really despised about the Catholic Church because he believed in priesthood of the believer. In other words, through Jesus Christ, we have access to the Father. We don't have to go to a priest. So someone commits a sin, they go to the priest. Let's say there's two people, okay? One rich, one poor. The per- poor person goes to the priest. Well, well, um, you know, I've committed this sin, uh, I'd like to ask for forgiveness. And the priest says, well, um, you know, God might be able to forgive you. You might be able to receive forgiveness, but, um, you know, uh, how much money do you have? Well, not that much. And the priest says, well, you're going to burn. And, um, so the rich person goes to the priest, I've committed this sin. And the priest says, well, you know, we have this altar we're trying to pay for. Uh, oh good. I can give some money. Oh, okay. You're forgiven. The selling of indulgences, this infuriated Martin Luther. And so all, although uh, Martin Luther did not have the intention of beginning a new sect of Christianity, his fury and subsequent actions and teachings began a movement that would not die. And so while the Catholic Church, uh, while the Catholic Church taught a hopeless message of salvation through actions, which the church herself deemed necessary, the Catholic Church, Scripture teaches otherwise. No matter what any person does to attain salvation, it's always going to prove futile. Paul clearly provides the truth of, of humankind's depravity and God's righteousness, which conflict with one another on complete opposite ends of the spectrum. And, and, and so he, he concludes his exhortation with an emphatic point. In Romans 3, 5 through 20, he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified. I mean, I mean, clear and emphatic. So no one can make any decision or commit any act to receive salvation. Even for those who believe that making a choice to follow Christ saves them, they are incorrect because the choice itself should be considered a work. That's why when you hear someone, I'm saved because I, am, I accepted Christ, that is incorrect. <laughs> You are not saved because you accepted Christ. If that is why you you are saved, then accepting Christ, it in fact, is a work, and you were saved by a work. No, you were saved because Jesus radically changed you and opened your eyes. You have received him, not actively, but passively. Accepting Christ is certainly an act. But by God's grace, people are saved and radically changed. Their eyes are open to know and follow Christ. And all actions of righteousness, including that of following Christ, are then subsequent to God's awakening of the heart. So it's a prideful mindset to believe that any human can make a decision for salvation and to follow Christ apart from Christ's awakening because that decision is a work. Nevertheless, this is the message preached in many churches (laughs) that we are saved by some decision that we have made. And that is certainly not what saves us. Sola gratia excludes all human work and decisions and unapologetically states that salvation of all life is by God's grace alone with an inferred echo of Paul's statement so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2.9. 
So grace alone should, shouldn't be confused with or perverted to mean that grace plus a little of anything else is what saves us. Grace alone supersedes everything, including human will. So Martin Luther says this. He says, If the Pope would concede that God alone, by his grace through Christ, justifies sinners, we would carry him in our arms. We would kiss his feet. Luther's thoughts should be like the taste of honey compared to the bitterness and the sheer hopelessness of the message of the Catholic Church offered in Luther's era. And perhaps his congregants, perhaps the Catholic Church parishioners wanted to be persuaded that grace could be achieved by merit. But as human nature is revealed and innately known, the the obliviousness to the futility of works becomes palpable to all of us. You know, we, we, we realize that the more we work, the more good deeds we try to do, the more useless it is. The surety of human will in any capacity is wrong, and its absolute wrongness manifests humanity's inerrant choice to sin. Our choice will always be sin without Christ. Without grace alone, salvation would not be possible. Stephen K. Prius writes this, When we speak of grace, we must first ask the question, What is grace? Grace is God's undeserved favor towards sinners. Grace is God's unmerited good intention, his loving disposition toward those who have gone astray and are dead in sin, and by nature children of wrath. Grace, then, is something in God, not in man. Human works will ultimately and utterly fail. In whatever endeavors we try to achieve, especially regarding God's grace. So, so this endeavor to achieve God's grace includes a self-willed decision for Christ. Because God's grace is granted precedent to a choice to follow Christ. Moreover, without God's grace, righteousness isn't possible but only radical evil. In other words, Christ is the one who changes us. Christ is the one who opens our eyes, and then righteousness occurs. Then we make a choice to follow Christ. We do not first make a choice to follow Christ, and then we are saved. We are saved, and then we follow Christ. So opposing the definite erroneousness of human will in soteriological work is the security of grace alone. So to follow Christ is to stand redeemed. To stand redeemed is to receive Christ. And to receive Christ is to be awakened by the grace of God alone. So human will doesn't possess a chance of salvation at all. So the doctrine of sola gratia that has encouraged and shaped believers throughout centuries is to realize that it is grace alone that supersedes human will. So to profess grace alone is to profess with certitude that nothing else compares and that God's grace alone supersedes all, including human will. So Martin Luther understood the vital doctrine of sola gratia, and all the reformers experienced it and lived their lives by this truth. God's grace alone supersedes human will. So this second overarching truth is that grace alone supersedes all magnitudes of sin. God owes humanity nothing. 
nothing but justice. But when tragedy strikes, often God is the, refer, the first to receive the, any blame from our wicked human hearts. Let me give you an example. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of planes take off every day and land at another airport with no problem. But the one time, the few times you hear of a plane crash, any problem, the first person that people are often to blame is God. Why God? How could you? Why would you? We need to realize God owes us nothing. And it is not injustice for him to wipe us off the face of the planet in hatred. That would be absolutely just. And the question is not, why would God save some and not others? The question is, why would he save anyone at all? And so throughout the Bible, the theme of humanity's wickedness is expressed. Let me give you an example. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11. Psalm 51, 4. David's known cry in repentance. And Romans 1 through 3. Read all of these scriptures. These will, will tell you repletely of the depravity of humankind. Complete depravity is the reason a savior is needed. An amazing miracle, the grace of God covers every sin of his people, no matter the magnitude. Numerous men and women in the Bible failed God, even in magnificent ways, but God perpetually loved them, forgave them, and even used them. Sola gratia professes not only that God's grace alone supersedes human will, but also that it supersedes all magnitudes of sin. Many professing Christians teach this, but practically disbelieve it in action, making them effectively verbal theists and practical atheists. Because if one truly believes, and rightfully so, that God's grace supersedes all magnitudes of sin, those who have committed even the most heinous acts would be loved by those who follow Christ and would be treated as equal brothers and sisters. So the church often preaches this truth, but disbelieves it in action. The greatest human need for everyone, regardless the amount of the magnitude and quantity of sin, is God's grace. Because we're all equally sinful. Christ became sin on his people's behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Humanity is consummately and completely evil by nature. No one is not evil. In fact, human righteousness is like filthy rags compared to God, Isaiah 64, 6. And this is because the issue is not that people sin, but that we do nothing at all but sin apart from Christ. So what should be considered is this. Jesus not only became his people's sin, but also their righteousness, because even a person's best will not suffice in the least. Even our righteousness is sinful. People need Jesus. He is humanity's greatest need. There's a pervasive thought in our godless society, and it's in direct opposition to the text of Scripture, and it's that people are basically good by nature. Even among Christians, it's subconsciously and perhaps maybe even not as subconsciously as we think, it's thought that some people are worse or better than others by nature. Reality, however, is that all of humanity is equally flawed and totally evil. So to profess grace alone is to realize that one's sinful heart, no matter the magnitude of his or her sin, is exceeding is exceedingly level with the most heinous murderer who has ever walked the planet. All are equally sinful. 
God's grace alone covers a multitude of sin, 1 Peter 4.8. And it's equally necessary among all people. Sola gratia is also a doctrine which exemplifies the innate need of God's grace because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23, all need grace. The Apostle Paul makes clear of his need of God's grace in his first letter to the church at Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 15.9-10, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Here, Paul genuinely laments that he is least in the light of his privilege at being including with the apostolate. Paul understood his nature undeserving of God's grace equally with the worst of sinners and, because of that, his greatest need, God's unmerited grace. In Paul's matchless stature, knowledge, and even self-righteousness, none of it would suffice to earn the grace of God, but he needed it and understood upon meeting the risen Christ that such grace was freely given to him, not based on what he had or had not done, and he had done a lot, (laughs) Everyone equally needs the grace of God. So Christ became the evil evil nature of his people so that his chosen people might become his righteousness. Such, Such grace doesn't exist in human nature. And it can't be earned no matter how faithfully we try. Sola gratia is a doctrine that points to the reality of humanity's depraved nature. All people. Everyone are everyone is radically and totally evil. So God's saving grace supersedes all magnitudes of sin. If his grace didn't supersede all magnitudes of sin, everyone, not just a few people, not just most people, everyone would be without hope. Because not only are there none righteous, but all are equivalently equivalently dead to sin. The, the reformers understood grace alone, and they were thankful for it. Grace alone is not a privilege, but it is a gift and an undeserved one at that. So to profess the gospel is to profess sola gratia with the realization that God's grace alone supersedes all magnitudes of human error, of evil, and of radical sin with which all humanity is infected. So the the third overarching truth here about sola gratia, grace alone. Grace alone supersedes earthly trials. Paul reminds God's people in Ephesians that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, Ephesians 4, 7. Calvin says this, No member of the body of Christ is endowed with such perfection as to be able, without the assistance of others, to supply his own necessities. In other words, Everyone needs Christ's measure of grace to face life, no matter the degree of difficulty. No two people are alike, just as no two people face the same situations or possess the same capacity by which to conquer trials. Therefore, it's the grace of God that sustains people, his people. So scripture speaks of of trials as a certainty. For example, 2 Timothy 3.12, where the Apostle Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. That's a very uh, convicting passage of scripture because we have to ask ourselves, are we facing persecution? And if not, why? (coughs) Excuse me. 
But in the context of human weakness, God's grace is always sufficient. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. God's grace supersedes not only human will and all magnitudes of sin, but also earthly trials. James, the book of James is a great book to read uh, when, you're, when you're going through a trial or want to read about trials. James is incredible. So James discusses the source of joy when he instructs his, his readers, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James 1-2. James seems to echo the instructions of Christ who says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Matthew five eleven through 12 from the Sermon on the Mount. Both James and Jesus look on sufferings as an external trial but neither sees suffering as something to be sought, and both see an eschatological benefit in suffering. In addition to the words of James and Jesus, there are numerous figures in the canon of Scripture. Paul seals the matter by confessing in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The matter of trials and suffering is about perspective. An eternal approach is taken by James, Paul, and even Christ himself because the trials of this life are but a mere speck in eternity. So the source of joy to James is the likeness of Christ. In other words, in other words knowing Christ and being conformed to his image. James 1.4, he says, Let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When it's considered who is steadfast and who is complete, lacking in nothing, the apparent conclusion is Jesus Christ. So Christ is the source of joy of which James speaks. When he says to count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds, he is focused on the, being conformed to the image of Christ. By God's grace, sola gratia, Christians are made like Christ and in his righteousness. And it's God's grace then that sustains the church and that is the source of all joy. By God's grace, believers are not only redeemed, but face trials with joy because grace is greater. God's grace supersedes earthly trials. Additionally, in Christ, when you think about this, in Christ, trials are better than anything else apart from him. Trials in Christ are better than ease apart from Christ. So before writing of the measure of grace given by Christ, Paul tells the Ephesians that God has blessed his people with every spiritual blessing in Ephesians 1.3. Ironically, Paul wrote to the Ephesians from prison. And in the same letter, Paul prays for spiritual strength and the peace of Christ, which transcends all understanding, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. So a great mystery of the gospel is the joy of suffering for Christ. The foundation of this joy is grace. Paul references the stewardship of God's grace given to him on behalf of the Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 2. And this Stewardship of God's grace allows him to suffer with joy, Ephesians 3, 7. So the foundational grace that supports incredible joy is commonly understood as a mystery and yet a reality for believers. 
we can't explain the great joy that comes from suffering for Christ. Do you think the apostles could understand the joy or could explain the joy that that, that they uh, experienced when they were martyred for Christ, when they were dipped in burning oil, crucified upside down, sawed in half, filleted, beheaded, killed with the sword? Do you think the apostles could at all explain to a logical human mind the joy that they experienced in that type of death? They could not. This is the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding. You can't understand it except by the Holy Spirit. So we can't explain the great joy that comes from suffering for Christ, but it's a reality for professing believers around the world, even to this day. The grace of Jesus Christ is a joy and the theme of martyrs, and it has been for centuries and will continue to be for eternity. Sola gratia proclaims a risen Lord and the joy only available in him. God's grace alone supersedes every trial because nothing humanity may face compares to the mystery that is foundational joy found in Christ. In all blessings that we may receive, Christ is better. In all normalities, Christ is better. And in all forms of trial and suffering, Christ is better. The grace of God alone supersedes all earthly trials. Sola gratia was the declaration of the reformers, and it should be the declaration of all believers. Grace alone is necessary and so absolute that it supersedes human will, all magnitudes of sin, and all earthly trials. To add anything to the necessity of grace is to effectively take away from the gospel, which is no gospel at all. So the believing heart, Christians, know and understand and experience sola gratia in such a rich and marvelous way that eternal gratitude and eternal confirmation to the, uh, to the image of Christ is employed perpetually. In other words, we never stop becoming like Christ because we have been saved by grace. It's believers who have experienced God's grace who render eternal praise and who are eternally thankful because it's by grace alone, by God's grace alone, that Christians are redeemed. And it's by God's grace alone that we live. Thank you for listening to the Active Worship Podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Did it, did it.